here on the Mighty Metro. You can give us a shout. We're out on our WhatsApp line. And, uh, yeah, give us a, a ring uh, there and uh, send through those voice notes just like my brother did there on 060-552-7303, 060-552-7303. We're going to take a brief break now. When we come back, it's our headline segment. Professor Mark Swilling is already on the line and uh, he joins us from the National Planning Commission. Professor Mark, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening. Nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much for taking time out to join us. A uh, big part of the reports uh, that came through this afternoon uh, from the National Planning Commission uh, suggesting that emergency measures should be uh, brought to bear to deal with the load shedding crisis. I think all of us can admit that we are in a crisis situation. This is not normal. It's not the kind of thing that we want both for firms and households. Um, and you're suggesting that uh, new generation capacity must be brought urgently so onto the grid and uh, similarly new storage capacity as well. W- what are you saying needs to happen for that to occur within, I guess, 36 months, as you suggest? Well, basically, the, the only way we can bring load shedding to an end within 24 to 36 months is if we bring a new generation capacity onto the grid at scale. And the only way to do that is to commission uh, a significant number of renewable energy projects that would make it possible to bring onto the grid another 10,000 megawatts of capacity in addition to what's already going to be done. So that's really the strategic focus. And we have to do We have to make that a national goal. We all have to unite around it. And all the obstacles in the way of achieving that need to be cleared out. And what are some of these obstacles? Well, uh, quite a few of the obstacles are uh, what Minister Praveen Gordon called last week uh, red tape. Bureaucratic rules and obstacles that uh, prevent... Um, large-scale renewable projects uh, being delivered by mm. independent power producers, as well as as well as by ESCOM on its own uh, uh, on its own properties, where it has power stations that are going to start to get closed down. And 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 I guess you know one of the issues, and and maybe just before we get into what some of the things that you're recommending, and so far as NASA is concerned, local content and so on. Uh, you know, yesterday, a former CEO of ESCOM, Jacob Marocha, uh, you know, shared uh, a tweet and, uh, I, you know, I managed to share it with some of our listeners who, who also, I guess, uh, gave some of their perspective. And one of the things he was saying was the most credible way to end load shedding, in his view, is to fix about 15,000 megawatts that's broken at ESCOM and renewable energy is good for South Africa, but it's not going to end load shedding. Um, and you're suggesting that actually a critical part of ending load shedding is bringing on expeditiously 10,000 uh, you know, megawatts onto the grid from solar, wind, and other renewable sources. Yeah, I mean, that is not to say that renewable energy is going to be our savior and, and, and be the only technology uh, that, that uh, we rely on. The, the National Planning Commission's uh, National Development Plan makes it very clear that 
in addition to um, all the all the various measures to meet our social needs and develop the economy, there also has to be the decarbonization of our economy. Chapter mm, five specifically mm. refers to that, sure. and that does that doesn't mean throwing out everything. Uh, the, the integrated resource plan makes it clear that we are going to be steadily closing down uh, coal-fired power stations because they're just too old. Mm. And uh, yes, um, you may be able to fix some of them, but as the CEO of ESCOM has said, that some of them are just not fixable. They have to be closed. Mm. But you can't close them unless you've got an alternative in sure. place. And that alternative has to be delivered very quickly and very affordably. And there's only one set of technologies that can be done quickly and affordably within two or three years. Mm. Yes, gas uh, and, 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 and some other technologies might be appropriate in the medium to longer term, but our crisis and our focus is now. Yeah. So let's focus on what we can do now in addition to all the other things mm. that are going to be done. Interesting point you mentioned there that uh, I guess also of the duration of the build process and how quickly you can get this online. M- many yeah. renewable project owners have raised uh, the concern that, you know, you can build, uh, you know, a, a wind farm. But the big issue really is about ensuring that ESCOM makes complementary investments in its transmission capability. Um, and even, I guess, all of the balance of plant stuff as well. Um, Just your reflections and thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the the transmission grid has been underinvested for quite a number of years, so there's some rehabilitation work that that needs to be done to bring it up to scratch. But Mm. the bulk of that transmission capacity is in the northeast of the country, where the power plants are. But the bulk of the renewable resources, wind and solar, are in the southwest of the country where the grid is very weak. So if you really want to mobilize our best resources, you have to almost flip the grid 180 degrees and build, extend the grid and its capacity in areas where it is weak, but where the resource, mm-hmm. namely wind and solar, is strong. So, so, so that's the situation. Currently, we build about 400 kilometers uh, uh, of, uh, of new grid cables per annum. That would have to go up to about 1,500 per annum if we really want to achieve our targets uh, over the medium to long term. And I mean, in your assessment and uh, your understanding, I mean, is ESCOM's transmission capex plans uh, aligned with that? I mean, I, I certainly recall a few months ago, you know, they're making a, a specific undertaking, but I guess there's a big question mark of where that money is going to come from if, you know, municipalities, um, you know, are not paying and there's all manner of financial challenges at ESCOM. Yeah. Um, so, so is that, I mean, will that create a kind of, um, you know, a, a cart before the horse type scenario where you build all the capability, but the challenge is effectively getting all of that energy to people and to firms? Yeah, you can't put the cart before the horse. It's just not possible. For example, if you want to, if you want to do solar power plants in the Northern Cape and now where there's obviously fantastic radiation resources, there's no capacity to, com- to, to connect to the grid. So ESCOM will not give you permission to, uh, you can only build where ESCOM gives you permission to connect. So the closest to the Northern Cape is Hopefield. Uh, and, you know, that's where there's a bit of spare capacity at the moment, but it's after bid window six, there won't be. So you have to invest uh, in, this, in this extra capacity, and it has to go together uh, with uh, the build program. 
But just to just to answer your question directly, there's an institutional challenge here. So that you can't really put together a really viable capital investment program for the transmission grid until you've got the transmission entity up and running. So the unbundling process to create a publicly owned uh, transmission company uh, under ESCOM Holdings is pretty much a precondition because no one's going to give ESCOM in its current state funding to extend the grid. But when you've created a, a new transmission entity with a clean, clean-ish mm. balance sheet, then you can put forward a, a credible capital investment program. Uh, and, you know, that's going to, you know, that's some of the work that we in the National Commission are going to be looking at over the next uh, year or two. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, um, you know, your assessment of, I guess, the NERSA process. I mean, a lot of people welcomed the, um, you know, uh, increase of the limits on embedded generation. Uh, there are still some issues, it seems. Um, and, and this is also part of what you are proposing as well. Talk to me about, I guess, you know, this um, sort of online process that you're suggesting for registering any new generation capability uh, that comes online. The difficulty is, uh, you, I mean, you will recall the press conference where the president announced uh, that the ceiling on uh, for registration of uh, standalone uh, or independent uh, renewable energy generation was going to be increased from one megawatt to a hundred megawatt. Now, a hundred megawatt renewable energy plant is a, is a pretty substantial piece of infrastructure. Um, but there is uh, quite a complex, time-consuming, bureaucratic process to register those plants uh, with NERSA. Um, and then you also have to then, uh, ESCOM then has to give permission for you to connect to the grid. And they have a very sophisticated system called the grid code and, the, and their own grid registration procedure. So we don't understand why it is necessary to have both. Uh, the grid is protected by ESCOM and a very competent system operator, and they will never allow somebody to build um, a 100-megawatt plant and then to almost sort of connect to the grid. Uh, that's just not going to be allowed. You have to get permission. So why do you have to go through two pr- procedures? First, the NERSA procedure, and then the, the ESCOM procedure. All you need at the NERSA level is, a, is, a, is an electronic form that you fill in so that NERSA knows what's happening, but it doesn't have to go through a full-scale approval process. Okay. All right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Then the other one, I guess, is, is around this issue of, of local content. And maybe for the benefit of some of our listeners, um, mm. just explain, I guess, uh, because now we're specifically talking about the REIPP, mm. sort of the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producers Procurement Program, uh, yeah. which is the one where there's sort of power purchase agreements between ESCOM and the IPPs and some implementation agreements between the Department of Energy and those IPPs as well. Um what function and role does local content play in the evaluation okay. of the different bids? Okay, so the way it works, your listeners have probably heard uh, phrases like bid window one, two, three, four, and five. What mm. this refers to is that the DMRE opens a period of time and they say, we are looking for independent power producers to come forward to say, uh, how much they can build uh, uh, within, a, within a certain time period. And then those, those bids are adjudicated against a set of criteria. 
And one of those, you know, and that includes BEE, that includes local investment in the local community, includes uh, some share ownership, mm. uh, but it also includes uh, making sure that the materials that you procure, uh, or 40% of the materials that you procure come from, South, from within South Africa. Uh, and, and that is causing a bit of a problem at the moment because you can only procure stuff made in South Africa if it's being made in South Africa. Mm. <laughs> so uh, quite a number of uh, factories were set up uh, after renewables began back in 2011, but renewables stopped being procured in 2015 when the CEO of uh, ESCOM refused to sign the, mm. the power purchase agreement. And there was lack of enthusiasm uh, and in favor of nuclear uh, during the later Zuma years. So, so the people who opened factories closed them down. And now suddenly we want a whole pile of renewables mm. in terms of the integrated renewable plan, and integrated resource plan, but there's only one factory producing solar panels at the moment, and they therefore can set their prices, and mm. that's not great. So what the IPPs are saying is we need to be allowed to import, uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the Department of Trade and Industry are saying, well, if, you, if we give you exemption, then we are sacrificing South African jobs because that's, that's job potential, job, you know, manufacturing. Uh, so we have a bit of a, um, uh, we, we have a, bit of a catch-22 mm. here. We need electrons on the grid as fast as possible, and for that we have to import some equipment. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want that to become a permanent condition. Mm. We want to make sure that that might maybe last two or three years while we build the factory. Uh, and DTIC has to come to the party and just help the industry to figure out how to do that. So, uh, maybe, Prof, let me try yeah. and understand. Um, is the NPC making the call for a general exemption across all components? Or is this about specific components? And the reason why I ask... Um, I mean, we, we tried to get Bernard Magoro from the REIPP office uh, on the show to maybe explain some of these issues for us. Because our understanding is that, you know, uh, entity, if one entity gets, um, you know, a, an exemption for co- a particular component, let's say it's an inverter, uh, yeah. grid scale inverter, whatever, that that yeah. is an exemption that applies across the board in that specific evaluation process, um, but for a specific component. So are you saying that there's something wrong even with that approach and that your preference would be for a blanket general exemption, even if for 36 months. Um, and, and if so, I mean, would that not be problematic for many of those who've already invested in the country? I mean, if I think about wind, there's, there's tower businesses out in the Western Cape and others uh, mm-hmm. who have already made their investment, and that should have some implications on them. No, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, our guiding star as an NPC is the NDP, the National Development Plan, which emphasizes jobs um, and, um, and, and, and investment. And so it would be foolish to, to support a blanket investment, I mean, a blanket exemption. What we, what we recommend in the statement is that there needs to be collaboration and, and dialogue and discussion uh, in order to work out a strategic approach. Mm, okay. so, there, so there may be certain components, like ball bearings, for example, yeah. for windmills, that you, you, you simply can't make here in South Africa. And, then, and, 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 and maybe you could have an exemption on that, for mm. example, for a specific period of time until maybe they can be manufactured here. Uh, 
but but each of these components will have to be identified, uh, and there needs to be more of a collaborative approach. What we have now is a standoff, where the, the DTIC says, "No, uh, these are these are the rules, and and that's it," uh, and then grants a little exemptions here and there. Mm. Uh, uh, and you have the industry saying, we're not going to reach financial close now until we get these exemptions, kind of holding a gun to the head. Mm. And, 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 that, and that is very, very, very uh, uh, problematic. Yeah. So, and maybe just so that's, that, uh, is, is this uh, in solar, um, more pronounced in solar than in wind, or is it across the different technologies? Uh, well, with, with respect to solar panels, it's a particular problem. Um, so, so solar panels are obviously absolutely essential for solar power plants, uh, mm. and, and there's one factory that's making them. Uh, so that's, that's a very particular blockage. I think windmills, you, there's, there's, there's more flexibility. Mm. Uh, there are windmill manufacturers that... that, that, uh, that uh, I've done some research with, sure, which sure. who are saying they can build windmills with up to eighty-five percent local content. Or towers. So does that mean they'll build the towers, the nestle, and all of those different components locally? Yes. Okay. Okay. And, and yeah, but the, but yeah. the bigger challenge, as you say, is solar. Yeah. Mm, mm. And and in so far as solar is concerned, I mean, uh, just the standoff. Um, the implications that it has, even before we get, I guess, to this emergency issue, because you'd recall we had an emergency procurement round as well. Um, yeah. And you would certainly, I guess, have studied what, what issues arose from that. Um, so maybe just a quick update for our listeners. Where are we with that emergency round? Um, what lessons have we learned there that might be of use or have some utility as we, you know, um, I guess, consider, you know, some of the things that the NPC is suggesting? Well, I think there's two lessons from the emergency round. Just for your listeners to clarify, this was like a special uh, emergency um, round mm. calling for, for, for bids to propose projects that could come online very, very quickly. Um, uh, in reality, the rules were so complex uh, and so fraught with, with, with problems that in the end, many of those projects took much, much longer to get to financial close, and some of them haven't got there at all. So the two lessons are, one, there was a set of rules that uh, uh, favored in particular uh, the car power ships, uh, which is basically bringing gas on ships to our, our various ports and then uh, bringing that gas, uh, um, uh, generating energy, and then bringing that energy onto the grid. Uh, by cable onto into into the natural grid, and that those projects haven't been able to reach financial close because they have run into environmental uh, constraints. So that's one lesson. Um, the, the 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 second lesson is that the specifications said that these uh, re- the renewable energy power plants need huge amounts of storage in order to be able to provide continuous energy supply. Mm. And that has pushed up the cost uh, to way to three times more than what the actual cost of renewables is. So the, so the cost of renewables through the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producers Program is below 50 cents, and the cost of renewables through the emergency round is above 150, well, uh, uh, 150. Mm. So... So, so, so that, that, that just shows you that the rules 
have been uh, have been structured in such a way that it's making renewable energy very expensive, and that's mm. not really necessary. Sure, sure, sure. And then I guess you know there's some tweets here, Prof, that uh, I want us maybe to just reflect on, and uh, a few people raising some issues insofar as base load is concerned, and um, you know um, one of our um, listeners here on Twitter, uh, Lungile Mashele, saying, "How will all of this help with load shedding? The problem is evening peak." The United States has 2.5 gigawatts of battery storage. We are proposing 5 gigawatts. Um, what's informing this perspective? Well, what's informing this perspective uh, with respect to storage, the 5 um, gigawatts of, of storage, is that actually in South Africa we've got this interesting situation where at night we actually have surplus energy that is available that we're just not using. So we could capture that and store it and use more of it during the course of the day. Mm. So that's so that's so, so it's it's in a sense not so much renewables related. It's just how how do we make more efficient use of the energy that actually is available? Um, we also have surplus energy in the existing renewable energy power plants around the country who are not allowed to produce more energy over a certain limit. So there's 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 windmills spinning around generating energy. We're not using that energy. Um, so, 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 so that's the one dimension. The other dimension is that storage is obviously also necessary if you're going to increase the total amount of renewables uh, on the grid, because yeah. renewables are variable, and you need to make sure that you you you, you have the backup systems within the overall national system mm. to to balance out that variability. Sure. And uh, just the last tweet uh, here, Bulalani Mbovumkuyana saying, very interesting, my only concern is around the abuse of emergency procurement. The corrupt elements will do what they do best. And uh, I guess this is a concern many South Africans share. I mean, if people could corrupt a process of getting life-saving, you know, personal protective equipment, um, you know, there's nothing beyond, I guess, some of the nefarious elements among us. Yeah, I think I think I think that that is a concern that that many people do raise. Uh, there's no doubt about that, um, and uh, you know it's not specific to renewables. It's not specific to the energy sector. Although we've had a massive amount of corruption, as we all know, as 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 as, as revealed in the Zonda report in the energy sector, but in the renewable sector, uh, there hasn't been uh, any case of a, of, a, of a major renewables project uh, being exposed for corruption. They've come in on time, on budget, and are generating uh, uh, significant capacity, which has probably saved us from going from stage six to stage eight uh, in, in the current crisis. They've, they've really saved us. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I hear the point, uh, but there is also a track record which is quite positive in that sector. Professor Mark Swilling, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That is Professor Mark Swilling. He's a commissioner at the National Planning Commission, which is calling for uh, yeah, the declaration of an energy emergency, which, of course, will uh, lead to particular actions, uh, in general exemption of local content, requirement on components, and NARSA, uh, you know, or making more convenient the NASA process and so on, and uh, increasing the threshold for generation capability and uh, yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts what do you make of that uh, and uh, yeah that there is our headline segment on the other side uh, we take a look at some of those voice notes to send them through and uh, send them through on 060 552 7303 
Zero six zero double five two seven three zero three.